Hey, I'm Maggie. I'm Laura. And I'm Brooke. And you're listening to the Planetarian Life Podcast. Each week, we meet here to share our passion for plant-forward cooking, our concerns about climate change and the earth, and discuss how together we can align our daily actions with our hopes for the future. Being a planetarian is fun, delicious, and soul-satisfying, and we're here to keep you inspired. And today, we are talking to Brooke Bolin. Um, She's a sustainable fashion advocate and content creator. She's a lifelong learner, which is extremely evident from her incredible writing. She has an Instagram page called Secondhand Sustainability. She writes a newsletter called Nuance Required. She has tons of free resources and great writing on her website, which you should absolutely check out. And we're here today to have a conversation about sustainable fashion, about overconsumption, about the upcoming holidays and Black Friday. And I'm really excited to dive into a conversation with you, but I feel like we should start with, I mean, I know that you started your sustainable fashion business in 2018, but was that the beginning of things for you? Or would you say that that was like a midway point on your journey? Like, take us back to how you got started. Yeah. Um, so I've always had an interest in fashion and business creativity, that sort of thing. Um, but sustainability wasn't really on my mind until I started my business. So I started my secondhand clothing store really as a way to make the process of getting rid of your clothes easier. Um, I wasn't really thinking about, you know, how secondhand is a more sustainable, um, outlet in fashion. Um, but as I, dug into the work and started building my business, my eyes were open to the excess, the waste, the problems of the fashion industry, because you're dealing directly with people's overconsumption and unwanted goods. Um, And that just really opened my eyes and put me in a headfirst dive into sustainability and making that a core tenet of the business that I was building, but also of my work and really viewing education around the fashion industry and sustainability as pivotal to everything I did. So that 2018, um, starting that business then really was actually the beginning of sustainability for me, even though my interest in fashion started way before then. Um, But it was actually getting into into the weeds of it that opened my eyes and showed me the importance of pursuing it. I think one of the biggest questions I have today in all of this, the thing that I was really drawn to in your Instagram account and in all your writing and how you're teaching and educating people is everything through this lens of a nuanced perspective. Because that's something that I really identify with, that we really identify with in planetarian life, because we see a lot of gray area. Like so many people, I feel like view sustainability through like a black and white uh, like things are right or they're wrong. And there's a right way to do something and a wrong way to do you know, things that harm the planet, that heal the planet. And there's just, the world is far too complex to me for that kind of binary. Um, and, and that's why I started Planetarian Life to create almost like a third space for people who weren't completely, you know, ve- uh, vegan or vegetarian, people who weren't really kind of on the omnivore track anymore, but wanted a place where they wouldn't feel shame or judgment if they did eat meat or dairy, um, but that they felt totally a part of some community um, that allowed them to kind of, you know, live their life. And so that's something that was, that that really drew me to your account. And so I wonder how, you know, obviously your sustainability journey started in like 2018, but like, tell me about how the focus to a more nuanced perspective came into the, into the, um, into your business. Yeah. So I think I've always just been a fan of nuance and just recognizing complexity. Um, I have a background in art, actually. So I think that kind of allows me to kind of have a more open-minded view of issues and address complexity just because of the the nature of creativity and art and um, how that is intertwined with culture and social issues and all of that. So I think that helped prime me um, in some ways to um, bringing nuance into sustainability. But really, it's so necessary. I I really can't even separate nuance from a pursuit of sustainability. Um, when it comes to us as individuals, 
we are all so different. Like you addressed with people on their their journey to plant-based or how they eat, we all have very personal experiences, needs, um, accessibility, um, that there's not going to be one right way forward for us as individuals. But then you take a global issue like the climate crisis, a global industry like fashion, and you're dealing with different geographies around the world and demographics and socioeconomic perspectives and positions that there's no way you can have one right way forward or one perfect path to sustainability because there isn't even perfect sustainability. It's not um, attainable. And so, of course, nuance is required. And I just, I found myself saying that over and over again in the conversations that I was having and in the research I was doing, the writing I was doing, is all of these issues are complex and require us to approach them with nuance because there's no other way to talk about them that um, actually addresses the full scope of the issues and the solutions. So like, let's um, tell people exactly what you mean when you're talking about a, a more nuanced conversation being required when it comes to sustainability specific to the fast fashion industry or sustainable clothing. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's a big topic. Um, so with sustainability as it regards to fashion. Um, there is our individual position in it as consumers, citizens, and then there is the industry perspective of, you know, how do we make clothes? What do, how do we sell them? What do we do with them when we're done with them? Um, and there's all these different touch points in fashion from how clothing, like materials are sourced to how clothing is made and spun and produced to how it's sold, um, to how it gets to you, to how you use it, and then what you do when you're done with it. And all of these elements have an impact on the planet, um, mostly negative. Um, and all of these are opportunities to change and to improve. Um, and there isn't one right way or one way to really address all of those at once. Um, no brand is going to be able to, to, to do that. As individuals engaging in fashion, we're not going to be able to touch all of these points. Um, and so bring in a nuanced perspective and a nuanced approach allows you to talk about the issues and the barriers um, the things that are going wrong, the things that are not ideal, um, but to balance it with, okay, what is the progress that can be made? What is the progress that can be made at a governmental level, at a corporate level, and then at a individual level? And so there's all of these complexities in each of those different stages. And so having nuance in that way may look like, okay, not everybody can give up fast fashion. Uh, most of us are aware of at this point that fast fashion and how fashion operates as a whole is not great for the environment with overconsumption, overproduction, um, just mass excess, a lot of carbon emissions, um, environmental degradation, all of these issues. Um, but not everybody is going to be able to give up fast fashion and switch to secondhand. There are barriers to secondhand as a solution. There are um, even problems in consuming secondhand if we're consuming it in the same way that we consume fast fashion. And then there's problems of donating our clothes to secondhand and what happens then. So it's not enough to say that there are blanket solutions. Each of these touch points in the fashion industry have a lot of complexity. Um, yeah. and so we have to talk about those. Yes. And I mean, from the perspective of, um, you know, encouraging what we do, encouraging people to eat more plant rich, we understand and appreciate that for many people, it's not possible, uh, to make this shift, um, as quickly as, you know, one might hope, or there are, you know, obviously like religious health dietary, you know, uh, uh, accessibility issues, pe people being uh, time poor, just not having the time to prepare these foods. Like 
bringing that that lens to the conversation, I feel like invites so many more people into the conversation. Like we we know that you can't do this. You may not be able to do this all, but you can start here. You can start in this place with this one thing or one meal. Um, and I think that that's really true of sustainable fashion as well. I, you know, I was reading uh, a piece that you wrote about, uh, about thrifting and the accessibility of thrifting. And I, I love thrifting and it's something that I try to encourage everyone in my life to do. Um, however, it is time consuming to thrift. It's, it's not as simple as just like, I know what size I am, add to cart, you know, it arrives two days later at my house. That's, it's easy. It's straightforward. You get to know a brand. Um, like what sizes work for you, but when you're going to a thrift store, you know, you've got to really go through the racks, you got to take your time and, you know, you may not see the quality of things that you like. Um, so I just think that that, that was one way that I thought really brought into relief, like, oh, this is not something that is available to everyone right now. Yeah, totally. It's, I am the biggest advocate of secondhand, right? I owned a secondhand clothing store. I love it. I think it is one of the most accessible ways to pursue um, sustainability, and it is a really great alternative. But to say that everybody should be shopping secondhand ultimately leaves a lot of people out of the conversation, right? Um, Yeah. Because, I mean, time is really the... I would say arguably one of the biggest barriers to secondhand, but there's also know-how. I mean, a lot of people who shop secondhand and actually end up walking away with great pieces have the experience and have strategy and like have maybe been doing it for years. And even though um, it's this great opportunity, it's not going to be great for everyone, um, especially in-person thrifting, which has the barrier of just the scale of the store itself is overwhelming. Online secondhand marketplaces have opened the door for a lot of people, but there's still barriers even to that. Um, That requires, in my mind, a lot more know-how than even just thrifting um, in in a store. You kind of have to learn the platforms and learn how to make use of them. um, And that requires time as well. So there's all these factors that come into... um, pursuing secondhand as a solution that if you are someone who faces time poverty and you just, you don't have the time to look through it and, um, all of that, then it's not going to be a a blanket, perfect solution for everybody. So yeah, that's definitely where the nuance in all of it comes in. Um, and why it's hard to say that, um, you know, it's a great alternative. Um, it can be for many, but it's not going to be for everybody. What are your thoughts on the online secondhand stores because I'm I use marketplace a lot where like I will pick up things locally but I also use like Mercari, Poshmark, Poshmark, ThreadUp a lot and I love them but I'm like am I I'm getting this thing that's not being you know manufactured from raw materials for me so that's good but then it's being shipped from somewhere and it's like a single small item being shipped from somewhere like I know you recently posted something about trade-offs. Like, is that just a trade-off or is, do you know if it's like balancing each other out and not really like a net zero or what's, what's the consequence there? Yeah, that's a really great question. So first thing to keep in mind is that 71%, I believe is the stat, um, of the impact of the fashion industry comes at the production level. So Mm -hmm. if we can stop production or minimize production, limit consumer demand for new production, that is a huge, (laughs) a huge chunk of addressing the problem. So if we can use secondhand to replace shopping new in any way, um, whether it is online or in person or borrowing, swapping, you know, whatever your secondhand source is, amazing. I'm, I'm all for it. Um, it is a great solution in that way, but there is also the problem of what we do with our clothes. So if we're shopping secondhand, um, in the same manner that like fast fashion has taught us to shop, which is 
often <laughs> um, and we're consuming and then discarding of something, even if we bought it secondhand within a couple of wares and putting that back into the secondhand disposal cycle, um, that cycle in and of itself is also problematic and wasteful. So um, that is a component as well of, of secondhand is we need to be careful in how we're shopping secondhand. It's a great solution. We need to cut down on production, but we also need to cut down on our end of life clothing disposal process. Um, so that being said, as far as the shipping component and the trade-offs of shopping secondhand online, it is a better trade-off to shop secondhand online than it would be to buy new locally, I guess, mm. um, if you're going to kind of compare um, shopping somewhere where you don't have to have it shipped um, versus getting a secondhand item shipped. Ultimately, that shipping component is a lot lesser of an impact than had you bought something new, regardless of where you bought it from. So it's kind of like you think there's hierarchy, right? Like it might be better to shop, you know, secondhand in person than online for the reason of shipping, but maybe you're not finding what you need secondhand in person, or you have um, a high demand area thrift store that, um, really you shouldn't be shopping in your local thrift store because there's um, scarcity of product and that should actually be going to the person who really needs um, to use secondhand. That's a really good point. Um, and that can be when online is an amazing tool. So yeah, hopefully that provides a little bit of clarity, but trade-offs are definitely a part of every decision we make. So it, to me, it seems like on even like a more basic level, we need to be talking in a, about and addressing mindset. You know, where where you get it from, whether it's new, how we consume, yeah, and how much we consume. And I, you have this um, article on your site called 20, 25 questions to ask yourself before buying something. And I was like, how could there possibly be 25 questions to ask before I'm making a purchase? And then I read the questions and I thought, Every one of these is such a such a valid, you know, question to be asking myself before I purchase. Um, and honestly, I thought I don't think I would buy anything. Like I, there would be no reason to buy anything after I read those questions. Well, thank you. Like, how is this going to work? How is this going to work with what I already have? Or will I need to buy something else in order to make this work with my existing wardrobe? Like, does this fill a gap? You know. I, I consider myself to be a pretty mindful consumer these days. And even when I'm shopping secondhand, or even if I am sustainably like buying something sustainable, that's new, I, I'm not asking myself these questions and I feel like I should be. I loved, um, am, am I chasing the high? I was like, I think people Ooh. do that. Sometimes I think that secondhand stores actually in encourage people to consume more. It's like having sales all the time. Like you also, I think one of the questions was, um, would I pay full price for this if it was on sale? But yeah, I, I wonder like, do people buy more because it's it's easy and, and inexpensive? You know, like I can go in and buy, like I know for myself when I buy my kids clothes, I buy like a garbage bag worth of 3T clothes for my daughter from Facebook. And like, I wouldn't probably buy all of those things but it is, I do use them all once I have them. But I wonder if like the shopaholic people will just be like, yeah, I can buy 10 dresses today instead of one because they're all $3. Yes. Yes. Yep. That's such a good yes. point. <laughs> yes. That a hundred percent is true. And it's true. It's why fast fashion is successful. Um, but it's also why you see, you know, there's Shein hauls, there's these fast fashion hauls, but you also see secondhand hauls, right? And yeah. it's the same thing of, oh, well, I might be normally spending X amount, whatever it is, 30 bucks on one item, but at a thrift store or at fast fashion, I can buy 10 items um, for that same $30, right? Yeah. And so that 100% is a huge motivation for overconsumption regardless of where you buy, because it's viewed as, you know, a deal too good to pass up. Um, mm -hmm. And we, mm -hmm. 
really like newness as as people. We like novelty. We like change, and um, we consumption has really been ingrained in us that we're not necessarily thinking about you know, are these 10 items that I'm buying in this one shopping trip good, responsible, like purchases that I will love for a really long time? We're thinking, oh, it's three bucks each. Like, that's a great deal. Like, of course I should buy this because like, when else am I going to get something for three bucks? Um, so yeah, that's that's a massive um, reason that people do overconsume. Um, and those questions like on my website are meant to bring us back to a sustainable mindset because really that's what sustainability is. It's not, it's not what you buy. It's not a label. It's not a business practice. It's not even regulation. It's none of those things that it is rooted in survivability for our planet, for ourselves. And that starts with how we think think about ourselves and our position and our actions in the world. And we, Mm -hmm. we won't get there by shopping. And so (laughs) that's why questions and thinking about how we shop and how we act um, can be really helpful in finding that mindset. And eventually, I I mean, I, I think I say it in the article, but you don't need to ask yourself every 25 questions before a purchase, you know, pick the ones that are the trigger points for you, like the, the problem areas for you maybe. Um, but eventually you'll learn that way of thinking that it's a Mm. lot more intuitive when you're shopping or thinking about the things that you're adding into your life that you're not thinking, you know, explicitly like, am I going to have to buy something else to make this work? You might be, but you would have more of a big picture perspective on your closet, the things that you own, that it's a lot more intuitive and natural to add things into your life or not add, choose to not add things into your life. Hopefully, right. ideally, that's that's the goal. But yeah, it's not always formulaic, but it does get easier with time. But there's a lot of unlearning at the beginning, which is where the, the questions can come into play. It's so funny. I bought a pair of shoes last night and then this morning I was reading your list and I was like, oh no, I like, I hope I can answer all these, but I'm like, you know what? I think I did a good job. No. And I mean, what I totally get that. And I would say we, we don't have to be too hard on ourselves and like too restrictive or too, if we overthink everything, I mean, that's not a great way to live either. I think in retrospect, like I've actually come to a place over the last couple of years where I'm almost like paralyzed to buy anything. I, I don't remember the last time I bought really something for myself. I love thrifting for my kids, getting things secondhand, but like, I don't buy anything. And I, and it's, it's become to a point where I realize like, I'm like the schluffy mom at drop off at school. Like I don't have things that look great or, you know, um, so I feel like there, there can be two extremes where you're just, you know, over consuming and buying 68 new pieces of clothing per year. And then you can kind of get to the point where you're, you're afraid to buy anything because you don't know, especially with all the greenwashing out there and the time, you know, talk about, you know, who, you know, being time poor, like, you know, who has time to, gosh, like in addition to doing the shopping, you have to do, you know, individual research, deep research on a company to find out whether or not their clothes are sustainably made or not. And you have to do the work to see through all of their greenwashing and, you know, all of the garbage they put on their website to make you think that they're doing a good job. And they're really, in fact, not. And um, I wonder if you have like good resources for, uh, you know, or, websites that, I mean, obviously I know we're not trying to promote people purchasing more things. However, if I do want to buy something, where am I going? Is there like an easy resource to find out if it's a good, if it's a good company to purchase from or not? That is a great question. Um, and unfortunately I would say, no, there's not just an easy resource, um, to figure out if something is a sustainable purchase. And part of that is because of the nature of business and the fashion industry is um, there. 
it also depends on what you value sustainability wise. You know, are you, do you value more the material? Do you value more ethics in the supply chain? Do you value the actual look and the fashion of it? Like there's all these different components of we as shoppers bring our own priorities, um, both functionality wise and sustainability wise to the conversation and no one business is going to be able to touch, you know, all of those aspects. And that kind of goes back to the conversation of trade-offs. There's so many trade-offs that we make um, in the supply chain producing fashion. It's not always straightforward to figure out what those businesses are that can appeal to your specific needs. But there are resources out there, um, such as the app Good On You um, is, a, I would say, a good starting point. It allows you can search a brand and it gives you a rating based off like how I think materials, animal labor or labor, and then also animal um, rights. And so it has a couple of benchmarks that it rates brands on. And I would say that's a good starting point. Um, use that as a, a benchmark, kind of give you an idea and but also go to the brand's website and decipher through that. That's tricky in and of itself with greenwashing in the language. Yes. Um, but there's also directories that will kind of do the sorting for you. And so there's a lot of them out there that are sustainable directories and they will often filter and categorize brands based on, um, you know, maybe it's veganism, maybe it is um, fair trade or the materials that are being used no synthetics, those types of things. So there are ways that you can find out that information, um, but is it going to be a one-stop shop for you? Probably not. You might have to look at a couple different places um, when you're deciding to buy new. If you are standing in a stadium of 100,000 people and everyone was like, we're here, to, like, what's the most important thing you can tell us about fast fashion? The reason that that is so hard to boil down to one thing is each thing, each of us, something else will speak to each of us differently. So what yeah. motivated me to stop shopping fast fashion is probably different than what motivated you to stop shopping fast fashion, right? And so for me, it's the picture, it's the human rights issues. Like it, I will always value people more so than... I mean, maybe a material. It's hard with the environment. It's all interconnected. Obviously, if we're if we're hurting the planet, we are hurting people. But the yeah. the supply chain issues and the labor rights issues, um, and the fact that almost none of them—it's only two percent of people in the supply chain actually earn a living wage—and people do die for fashion. People are harassed. People are abused. People are pushed to the limits and beyond of their health and all for fashion also that people can wear some new hyper trendy cheap item right and to me that is just it's unacceptable right um i don't want my purchases in any way to contribute to someone's life being harmed um to that degree but for some people, it might be a different issue that appeals to them. It might be um, the animal rights issues in um, fashion that appeals. That is a big issue for a lot of people. And it might be, um, it might be when you hear about how hard, um, you know, different aspects of the supply chain are on the planet and on affecting the communities around where the factories are and all these different elements. So it, it'll be different for everybody, which is why it's hard to boil it down. But ultimately, nobody should have to die for fashion. And that's unfortunately where we're at. And we have to address that. Yeah, that's, that's a great starting point. Like nobody should have to die or be abused or harassed or suffer so that you can wear an $8 t-shirt. Brooke, what would you recommend for like resources? Like if someone's interested in this or they want to learn more or they're shocked and they've never heard of these problems or what, like where, where can we start besides your Instagram and your website, which obviously <laughs> we will link and they're full of free resources. Yeah. 
So, I mean, honestly, one of the most accessible touch points is going to be, I would say, Instagram and organizations that are communicating through Instagram. Because where where are we shopping from, right? We're shopping, we're, our touch points for fashion are social media um, and online. And so finding those resources there um, and incorporating that into your media diet is, I think, a really helpful first step. So some organizations that I really like and think are very accessible and helpful in the resources that they have would be Fashion Revolution. They're kind of one of the originals of um, this this work. Um, And they have a great Instagram and also a ton of resources on their website. Um, Additionally, I would say Remake or Remake Our World is another organization that really fights for um, people all along the supply chain, but they also are educating people along the way. Slow Factory is another one that does really great inclusive work, um, really addresses mm-hmm. the complexity and just the the scale and the differences that we have and how we need to address them. So those are three organizations that I would start with just as an Instagram follow, a website visit. There'll be so many resources just on those websites. Mm. Maggie, what was that book that you read I, we talked about it on like oh. one of our first podcasts. I think Aja Barber uh, wrote Aja it. Aja Barber. Overconsumed? Consumed. 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 Yeah. That's a great book. Yes. It's so fascinating to hear it from an, in someone. She worked in the fashion industry, right? Like in production. So she has mm-hmm. like the inside perspective. Blue by mind. Yeah. She, she's an amazing resource. Also a very good Instagram follow, but that book is really great. Another author would be um, Elizabeth Klein is a really great starter point for she's written books that are really accessible to you as a consumer um, and the actions that we can take as individuals. So The Conscious Closet, she wrote um, a couple others, but she would be really great if you're looking for a book, um, a great starting point. But Consumed is also an amazing resource as well. What about what about a documentary? Because everyone loves a good documentary, even though those tend to be like a little bit of misinformation in them. I do feel like these documentaries that are coming out that are exposing various industries like Seaspiracy or... Oh, I, I love a good propaganda documentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really do. I really do. If you align with my values, you can inflate it all you want. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's a very interesting medium, right? Um, it is, and the agenda is often clear, but, um, you know. Love it. It's also important messages embedded in them. So um, I would say when it comes to fashion, the documentary that gets people in the door the most would be The True Cost. And uh-huh. that is just kind of a deep dive into like fashion supply chain and waste. And it's, I might be like a 2010 documentary. So it's it's a little bit dated in the um, way that fashion has just evolved so much in the last several years. Oh my gosh, But yeah. the issues are still the same. Um, some of the statistics might not be accurate anymore, but overall, it's a really good picture of um, the fashion industry. But there are so many. There's one called River Blue that talks about just the, the textile dyeing process and the impact of that. I just looked these up. The true cost is twenty from 2015, so it is a little dated, okay. but you can watch it on Amazon Prime Video for 99 cents. So we're we're just coming up on like the most overconsumption months of the year. Uh, you know, November, December, to January 1st, you know. Uh, like we should, we we would be remiss if we did not at least talk about you know what what can we do going into the holidays to stop ourselves from buying things that we don't need for ourselves, for other people, especially clothes. I feel like clothes is probably one of the leading Christmas gifts, especially for like adults, even for children. Um, what, what are we not doing this black Friday? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. A lot of things. Um, so <laughs> yes, black Friday is really like, it is just, the perfect picture of all of the issues in consumption, um, you know, just heightened um, and just put on steroids on display. 
um, of just how we consume and how we fall into the traps of, you know, marketing and the manipulation that can um, really be present there. And so my, I mean, first, if you don't have to shop on Black Friday, don't. (laughs) Um, I mean, that would be my first, like, if you truly don't really need to buy something, just take it off of the agenda. Just don't let it be an option. Um, But that's not often realistic, given that it is, you know, a gift buying season. And there are times that we do need to, like, buy things at a discount. Like, just because we're interested in sustainability doesn't mean we have to, um, you know, have to only buy the most expensive things and right. So there are times that it's great to take advantage of something that you really need at a discount. And so mm-hmm. I would say starting point, if you're shopping for gifts, rethink first how you do gifts in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, do mm-hmm. you need to be giving a material-based or object-based gift? Talk to the people you are gifting to and like make it a part of the dialogue. What do you actually need? Because that is way more thoughtful and helpful than guessing and ending up giving someone something that sits unused. So I know that's not a glamorous answer about gifting. And like, we we would love to be able to spontaneously just know what to give people and to um, be able to, you know, give them useful things, but often that's not the case. We might not know actually all of those things. So having a dialogue with the people you are gifting, if you are going to be gifting um, material-based things, um, opening that dialogue can be very helpful so that you're not actually buying something that will go unused because probably all of us have gotten gifts that are not useful (laughs) to us. And, um, you know, and you say it's the thought that counts, but when it has a really, and when it does have a material um, consequence on the planet and our own lives and the clutter around us, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's like one of like 55 thoughts you should be having about this choice. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I would also say if you are using the discounts on Black Friday to, um, buy things for yourself. Um, I would encourage that you make a list of the needs that you have prior to knowing anything about any Mm -hmm. Black Friday sales at all. Um, And I recommend this generally just keeping a backlog of like a a thrift wish list or gaps in your closet, gaps in your life that you just have that then you actually are identifying what the true needs in your life are, um, mm. not motivated by the hype and the marketing push that can fabricate need that isn't actually there. So having a list is a really great way. And limits are great. Like give yourself a budget, give yourself an item limit, give yourself just some sort of barriers or boundaries that you're not going to be moving into that overconsumption. And part of it could be you unsubscribe from all your marketing emails, you unfollow brands, you know, don't allow yourself to, don't put yourself in the position for marketers to take advantage of you in that way. Because unfortunately, a lot of the Black Friday marketing is preying on our psychological um, impulses, just our mindsets. And so to be aware of that and how brands can use that um, against us, that sounds very predatory. And at times it can be, but um, yeah, just having that awareness can help us rethink, okay, outside of the, the moment of the purchase, what does this, what is the long-term impact? Um, do I actually really need it? Am I buying this because there's this fabricated urgency, this artificial scarcity? Um, the marketing has created a fear of missing out, right? Like deals too good to pass up. Can we separate ourselves 
from that and not put ourselves in a position to be making purchases motivated by that. Um, I go back to a quote that is just, it's not a good deal if you didn't need it in the first place, right? You might be like, oh my gosh, this $100 item is 50% off, right? Like you see these massive discounts, like that's an incredible deal, right? Half off. But if you were never going to buy that item in the first place until you know, the marketing had been pushed to you to make you want that item, that's still $50 you spent that you weren't going to spend otherwise. So I think it's important to really go into the holiday and go into the season recognizing what are my actual needs, if any, um, and how can I set myself up to meet those needs in a way that is beneficial to me, not the brands. Black Friday and discounting in general has really ingrained in us this idea that we are owed affordability, affordability that we are owed um, discounting, mm. right? We think like all brands should have Black Friday deals, right? This is the shopping day. Everybody, everybody should be doing this, right? Mm. And that's kind of the mindset that we have, but we really need to you know, address the root of that. First off, why? Why? Who says that we're owed affordability? Because affordability at what cost, right? And why are we owed discounts? And the problem is that when these really big brands are slashing their prices at these just exorbitant discount amounts, like 75% off, there was a fast fashion brand last year that did 99% off and was literally selling garments for cents. Like that's, wild, right? And so it creates this expectation that all brands should be discounting in this way. But if you're a small business, if you're a sustainable business, if you're a local business, you can't do that. Like your margins are already going to be tighter than a big business because just of the scale of your production or the scale of how you make the things that you sell is not going to be as great. So you're not going to be able to produce that as cheaply as big brands can. And so your margins are tighter. You're not going to be able to discount at the same rates if you can discount at all. And so we can't expect those smaller local brands also to be participating in Black Friday the way that big brands are. And that's okay. Like if you like through, that is a good thing. We don't, we don't want them discounting at those rates because ultimately we want those businesses to be the businesses that are thriving. I truly believe small business is, you know, it's the backbone of our economy, but it's also, I think, the future of our economy. And it's what breeds innovation. It's what breeds newness. It's what supports the people who live in your community. And when we shop with those brands, I think the statistic is around 48, I think, um, but 48% of the dollars that we spend in local businesses are recirculated locally versus 14% of the dollar that you spend at a big chain brand is recirculated locally. So that's almost half of the amount of the money that you're spending at a small business is benefiting those around you and the community that you live in. And that's building resiliency. It's supporting Often, um, I mean, the last several years, we've seen massive uptick in women-owned businesses, Black-owned businesses, um, and it's supporting these people groups of business owners that are traditionally underfunded, underrepresented, and don't have access to the capital that big businesses or um, male-owned businesses do. And so spending money there ultimately has such a big a much bigger impact than it does spending at your local um, or not local, but spending at your big box chain stores. And so I think it's really important to have that perspective of the impact of your dollar can go a lot further when you're shopping small and locally. I feel like we must talk about at least briefly um, our shared belief in in the power of collective action, because I feel like there's so many people that just think, what does it matter what I do? What does it matter if I, you know, eat plant-based for this meal? Or what does it matter if I buy something from Sheen? It, it can't possibly in the grand scheme of things. 
And so I wondered if you could sort of briefly just talk about your philosophy on collective action. Yes, collective action. It is so important. So as individuals, it's hard at times to see how we could possibly make a difference, right? We're one person. And it brings up even questions of, you know, a majority of the fault of the climate crisis or the issues in the fashion industry, whatever issue, are in the hands of very few powerful people, right? And so why is it my problem, right? And we are still a part of the systems, but we aren't responsible for the systems, but how we engage in them is our responsibility. And so, and that's a complicated question, right? Of who who's to blame? How do we cope? And how do we how do we move forward when maybe we aren't responsible, but we can be complicit or maybe not? So what do we do with that when the issue is so big that it requires everybody's participation, regardless of responsibility in creating the problem? And so the importance of collective action in viewing our solutions as collective solutions and our individual actions functioning within community and being enacted at scale, right? So I may choose individual actions of shopping sustainably, cutting back on um, how I shop or cutting back on shopping entirely or how you eat, how you drive or commute, all these different things, all these different individual actions that we can pursue, their impact is amplified when we do them in community. And when someone around me sees the ways that I am able to change my behavior at probably not that great of a cost to me, um, it doesn't have to massively impact my life. That invites other people into the solutions that are already available to them. So the more people we get on board, the more impact we'll have. And the reality of the climate crisis and these big picture problems is that they require systemic transformation and big, urgent action. And that requires governments to be on board and it requires big corporations to be on board. And we as individuals have power in how we can catalyze and push governments and corporations to change. Uh, And I mean, America and certain governments, like they are responsible to their constituents. And so if we as individuals are talking to um, our representatives, if we are acting in a way that signals where our values lie and communicating that, ultimately our governments will be responsible to what we are signaling as individuals and as citizens. In the same way for business, basic supply and demand, if we as individuals, if enough of us are signaling that we don't want to buy from exploitative brands, if we are willing to stop shopping so much, which is so important, if enough brands see enough people doing that, then that's where the change starts to happen. And that is why collective action is so important is because we have strength in numbers and we don't, it's also a very, it's reassuring. It's not, there's not as much pressure on the individual, right? Because I can't do everything in every area of my life to address all of these issues but I might be really good at this one area. I might, you know, I specialize in fashion. You specialize in food. Like you can pick up where I leave off and vice versa. And so we're able to get a lot further faster in community than we are by ourselves, which is reassuring and also just much more impactful. I love that we're able to get where we're trying to go much faster in community than alone. Yep. I love that. Oh my gosh, this has been such an amazing, amazing conversation. And honestly, like, I feel like we could talk for another like three hours, but I really was um, taken by that quote on your website. And I just felt like it just could be a good 
morsel for people to nibble on uh, after they finish listening to the episode. So I was wondering if you would read it for us. The quote reads, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person is humanized or dehumanized. If we treat people as they are, we make them worse. If we treat people as they ought to be, we help them become what they are capable of becoming. We could have done a whole episode just on that quote, but we touched on many elements of it. It sums it up quite quite well. Our our role, and also just the the power that we have and the world we can create. I love it, Brooke. So thank you so fun. much for coming on today. This was such an amazing conversation, and I truly cannot wait to share it with people. Um, and we will direct them to your website, to your newsletter, Nuance Required, to your Instagram page. Thank you so so very much. Yeah, thank you. This It's been a lot of fun. I could talk about these things all day. So I appreciate the yeah. opportunity. <laughs> we'll have you back for sure. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you have a moment, we'd be so grateful if you'd rate the podcast and leave a review. Also take a minute to connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Planetary and Life. Head to planetarianlife.com for more recipes, inspiration, and to become a planetarian. See you next week. Bye. Bye.